You are listening to Fantasy Film Ball with Matt and Dylan, and on this show, we turn movies into sports and look at all the Oscar prospects and their fantasy value. I believe that this is going to win Best Picture, and here's why. I mean, Denis Villeneuve got all the nominations he needed for Dune and still missed out on the Best Director slot. Don't let me get my hopes up. The Academy has disappointed me too many times. Thank you to the Academy. Thank you to all of you in this room. I can't remember the last time I walked out of the movie theater on such a high. No matter how certain it seems, anything can happen on nominations morning. Never count the Golden Globes for just doing something off the walls and bonkers. It's the kind of movie that reminds me of why I fell in love with movies. And the Oscar goes to... Welcome into episode 47 of Fantasy Film Ball. My name is Dill. And my name is Matt, and this is a show where we turn movies into sports and sports into something we don't talk about here. And today, we are going to be talking tech predictions. We are going to be talking Dune trailer. We might talk a little bit about poor things swapping. That's that's interesting. That's a weird date that they've given poor things, which now feels like it might not be a contender after all. We're also going to be talking about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, one of the most acclaimed movies of the year at the moment, and Chevalier, a film that I know you've been anticipating for a very long time. I saw it all the way back in September, and we finally get to talk about it. We're also going to be drafting our favorite performances by young actors. So we got so much to talk about today, and Dylan... How are you doing? How are you feeling? What's your headspace like? We got Dune's trailer. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I really, really like the Dune trailer. I think Dune Part 1's trailer is a little bit better, but that doesn't mean this trailer's not good. I'm very excited. This may now become my most anticipated for the rest of the year over Oppenheimer, but um, it's a pretty close race. Well, you are a Warner Brothers shill, so I am. That is, that's good to... Actually, speaking of Warner Brothers shills, interesting thing, my hometown, little London, Ontario, Canada, is actually where the Warner Brothers were born. Wow. So, so maybe you should be the shill, not me. I should be the shill. And also, Ryan Gosling was born there. So, uh, you know, Barbie, it's full More circle. Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers, Ryan Gosling, me shilling for it. Let's talk poor things right now because announced as its release date is September 8th. September 8th is the second day of TIFF, which means that this film cannot premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. Unfortunately, this is the exact same release date, the first weekend in September. This is the same release date that Barbarian had last year. What does that say about Searchlight's hopes for it? Because Barbarian also was a Fox movie last year. Not Fox anymore, Disney, Searchlight. How does this make you feel about the movie's chances? It definitely drops them down a little bit. Maybe this can still be a smaller player, maybe in some tech categories. Maybe it breaks through in one above the line, but for picture, this really hurts, and this is no longer my predicted adapted screenplay winner, which, I mean, it was more of a kind of big swing, willing to miss, and if I hit the homer, then it would be good, but uh, it looks like it's such a big swing that I just fall down in the batter's box. It's a film that I know I'm very excited for. I actually just finished reading the book, uh, and we were both going to be reading it together, but I didn't realize you hadn't even gotten the book yet because it's been in shipping to you. So in the time that it's been shipping to you, I have finished the whole thing. Uh, and good, good, you know, good. I, I, I really enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed the book. I can see 
why they put this on September 9th. This is not the favorite. This is much closer to the killing of a sacred deer. Some of the things that I said earlier in the year when I was saying why Poor Things was not going to be nominated and would not be Searchlight's push is exactly how I feel about it after reading the book. There are some very gruesome surgery scenes. There are a lot of implications that are kind of horrifying, including the brain of a baby is put into the uh, body of a grown woman in her mid-twenties. What I said early in the year was, oh, it's some sort of like weird sexual odyssey that happened. That's basically what it is. Uh, and it is very uncomfortable having it's we're gonna be seeing emma stone acting like a baby uh having a whole lot of sex uh all across europe it's gonna be controversial for sure and it's going to be quite horrifying at times and it's going to make people squirm people will probably make this a controversial movie so i can see exactly why they put it in early september uh, if it gets extremely good critic reviews if it still premieres in competition at venice i wouldn't put it past it to be some huge success in critical awards. Maybe get a few things at the Oscars. But I don't think that this will be in Best Picture. Fair enough, fair enough. I can't wait to read it and die then and, you know, feel it out for myself. But I feel that this is a pretty good... Um, I can't wait to dive into it myself and read it and, you know, make all the opinions. But that overview right there seems pretty good. Maybe we'll we'll disagree on it. Maybe you'll give the case for why this totally could be a major Maybe. best picture contender. It's an exciting time to have all these films coming up and starting to see pictures and starting to see release dates coming up for them. Uh, it's my favorite time of the year. And speaking of which, I think we're going to start this episode off by jumping into our reactions to the Dune trailer and discussing how we feel about its awards chances. So let's hop right over to that. First reactions, Matt. This thing starts off, how do you feel? I would say that Dune Part 1, I am a big fan of. It took me three watches of that film to really call myself a big fan of it. I first saw it at TIFF, and I was disappointed. I thought it was good, not great. I saw it again in theaters later, and I liked it more. And then I saw it again on my TV, and I finally loved the film. I am a huge Denis Villeneuve fan. I am always anticipating whatever he does next, and this is sure to be one of the biggest movies of the year. I guess I was kind of similar to you with the first Dune. The first time I saw on the opening night, I was a little bit let down, but maybe not so by the movie, just the surrounding I was in. There was this guy like three rows in front of me to the right who was playing like crossword puzzles the whole time with his phone brightness on like max keep in mind this is the very first showing and imax like he had to go out of his way it wasn't like oh i'm just stumbling to watch a movie because it was sold out as well so that kind of detracted from the overall viewing but i went back i watched it again i loved it um i really like how the first movie isn't rushing through stuff it takes its time it ends in a you know questionable spot some could say but like it sets up what's coming next and this trailer here i think really delivers on hey part two it's going to be a little bit bigger we had action sequences we had arguably bigger set pieces we had paul riding a sandworm we had all the stuff that we really wanted to see in the first one that we're getting here in part two plus we have new cast members we have cast members from the first one that are getting bigger roles and of course we have timothy chalamet back as what i would say maybe 
my favorite role I've seen him in so far as Paul in the Dune movies. My reaction to the trailer, I think I'm maybe a little bit less warm towards this. Uh, I, I wasn't as impressed by this trailer as I was for the trailer for the first one. And I guess my vibe overall was that I was just seeing what we saw in the first one. Yes, there was more action. Yes, we finally see the the sandworm being ridden, but it had me only excited as a moviegoer, not so much as an Oscar predictor, because looking at this, all I could think was, this looks, it sounds, it feels exactly the same as the first movie. That's good news for being a fan of the movies, because it means that I know I'm not going to be disappointed, but it kind of just confirms what I've been thinking about this one's Oscar chances, which is this is not going to be bigger than the first one. This is not doing anything different. It's going to miss out on a few of the nominations that the first one got because it's not new anymore. It's not novel. It's just more of the same being done very well. I just feel like depending on how this movie goes, it may not win as much, but some of the nominations may be safe because at least early box office tracking for this movie looks like it could do double what the first one does, which could help for its awareness and some people be like okay yeah maybe this is better than the first even though i don't think box office is a great track for a movie's quality however i don't know i definitely can see the angle for this losing more and maybe getting nominated less but i could also see the angle for this maybe picking up a few different wins but also still losing out on some of those the first time because it's not like 2021 where there's not many blockbusters we have a lot this year so some of those more blockbuster type categories could be spread more around instead of doing winning what was it six or seven awards yeah it won six awards and i do think that it's going to win a few but i i don't think it's going to win the whole shebang the whole six uh because mm -hmm. as we saw in this trailer let's talk cinematography let's talk visuals I would say, for the most part, the visuals are the same, but we see some sneaky bits in black and white. Now, I wonder how much of the film is in black and white, or if it's just, like, a few sequences, a few flashbacks. Uh, I think that's a really interesting thing that might give it an edge in cinematography. But the other thing is, everything on Arrakis looked exactly the same as things that I think we've seen before. This doesn't look like a step up from the first one to me. I would say to maybe defend the cinematography a little bit, it looks like on each different planet, maybe there's a different color grade, different lighting sort of thing. That could be your angle, be like, hey, yeah, Arrakis looks the same, but this place, that place, they look a little bit different. Also, here's another thing. This whole movie is shot in IMAX rather than the first one being just select sequences. This entire movie is going to be in the IMAX format which I know I'm really excited. It's going to look glorious on a big screen, no matter what. And it's going to sound glorious. That's one thing I got from this trailer is that the sound is just as big, just as booming, maybe even more booming than the first one. Now, the music sounded exactly the same as the first one. It didn't sound like there was anything new there. But, oh my God, the sound effects are just glorious. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's got me feeling very hopeful for the sound, the editing win. That seems like it could happen for this movie again. The sound especially. I mean, just the, the boom, boom, boom of the tracker in the beginning oh, yeah. throughout the whole trailer. That was very engrossing and like you felt like you were in there. And I'm sure once we see this trailer in an actual cinema... It's going to be even more loud, even more impactful. We got to see some fresh new faces. We got Austin Butler. We got Florence Pugh. I, we didn't get Christopher Walken, which I'm really excited to see what he's going to look like in this sequel. I forgot that he was in it. I totally forgot. And then I saw him on the poster and I went, wait, what? Christopher Walken? I think I heard this is his first like 
Hollywood movie since like 2015, something like that. 2014. It's even longer. Yeah, Jersey Boys. Something we haven't talked about yet is the adapted screenplay here. Now, the first film was written by Eric Roth, who is one of the most well-respected screenwriters in Hollywood. He has written everything from Forrest Gump all the way to this year, Killers of the Flower Moon. He's not writing Dune Part 2. He's off the script. The script is written by Denis Villeneuve and John Spates. How are you feeling with Eric Roth off of Dune Part 2? Are you still feeling optimistic about the screenplay? I am. I think the voting angle for Dune and screenplay is the unadaptableness and bring it to the screen. So as long as people like the movie, I feel like the screenplay will be in that four, five, six range where either it's the first one out or it's when the last one ends, just like in 2021, where I would say it was probably number four, maybe number three in adaptive screenplay with Drive My Car at either three or four, and then Lost Daughter at number five. I don't think I'm worried for the Dune screenplay on this, despite the fact that Eric Roth is off of it, uh, because Denis Villeneuve is still on board. The vision of this film is in safe hands. And also, I'm just going to say, the second half of the book seems less writer-y than the first half. The first half is about establishing the world. The second half is about living in that world. But overall, I can't wait for Dune Party to come out. We had to wait all the way until November this time, though. It's even further away than the first one was. I am so excited for this movie. Uh, I might sound a little bit negative because I'm just trying to justify my less optimistic stance on the film for the Oscars. I'm sure we'll be talking Dune Part 2 all the way up into its November 3rd release. We have our May Oscar predictions. We are continuing those, but now we are into the tech categories, and it seems like it's perfect time because the Dune Part 2 trailer just came out, and I have, you know, a small hunch. We're going to have Dune Part 2 either number one or number two in probably all four categories we're talking about today. I don't have it in my cinematography lineup, but I know that you do, which means let's start with your cinematography predictions, because this is one that I'm going to disagree quite strongly with you. This year has been my year more of taking risks. Last year I took some. Did they pan out? Not entirely, but some did. And this year I want to... I want to hold more to that. So at number one, I do have Dune Part 2. This would be a carryover win from the first. And I'm really trying to argue with myself, how many carryover wins will Dune have from 2021 here into 2023? Right now, I'm seeing like two or three. I have it in cinematography. I have in visual effects. Sound is really close, but right now I have it just off in sound. But yeah, Dune Part 2, I have at number one cinematography. The trailer boasts some beautiful images. While yes, it may look similar to the first, they do show hints of when they go to some other worlds. There will be some different cinematography choices. I feel like some very interesting visuals could come out of this. My argument against it in cinematography remains the same. Uh, it looks exactly the same as the first one. It is shot fully in IMAX, which might help a little bit. Plus, there are some black and white elements, but otherwise, this is the same film that we saw the last time. It's no longer novel. It's no longer new for voters. They're going to see it and go, well, we already voted for that last time. I think it's going to be like Avatar, which got pretty close, but... At the end, I think it was probably number eight, number nine in cinematography, and that film looked gorgeous, but it just looked like more of the same from the first one, which means there were more novel, more new films 
for the Academy to reward. Last year's cinematography lineup was so weird and so different. I don't know if that's going to be a new trend for this branch going forward where they pick films that don't really correlate with the rest of the Academy's nominations. Because, like, we had Bardo. We had Empire of Light. We had Elvis getting a nomination here where, at that point, it wasn't really in the race. We had Tar, which was a surprise nomination. We had Maverick Miss. So there's a lot of question marks with this category. So maybe where we're predicting now doesn't look anything similar at the end of the year. But continuing here, I'm pretty sure my number two is your number one, and that's the color purple. After the CinemaCon raves, at minimum, this movie's going to look good. With it being a big production here from Warner Brothers, they're gonna push this out. It comes out right at the last minute, which could hurt, but also could help and be the, the hot new movie where it could maybe even overperform on nomination morning. Dan Lawson also is on a hot streak right now, just coming off of John Wick. Color Purple seems, it, it seems good. You know what else seems good to me? And maybe this is a category this movie could miss because this is the early frontrunner to many, but Killers of the Flower Moon, cinematography, not all Scorsese's movies hit in this category. When they do hit, they're very strong. Killers could be one of those safe movies all year. I know we didn't have one of those last year, but this could be like a solid number three, number four all season long where it's never in winning contention, but it's always in there pretty safely for a nomination. Scorsese also does do quite well in this category. We saw The Irishman get in here. Silence, the only nomination that film got was in cinematography, and he won in 2011 for Hugo. Martin Scorsese didn't win, but his cinematographer on that film did win. You understand what I'm saying. Killers of the Flower Moon feels really, really strong here. I think that this film's gonna get 10 to 12 nominations, and I don't think that cinematography is one that it's really vulnerable to miss. The last few years, we've been screaming for Hoyt Van Hoytema to be nominated in cinematography, and he continues not to get in last year with Nope, and this year, I think maybe comes his time with Oppenheimer. The capturing of the atomic bomb is probably going to be very revolutionary. It's going to be very different. We've never really seen someone shoot a live explosion to this magnitude, so I feel like he could capture this in a very interesting, a very dynamic angle. If this movie is an Academy favorite where it is in picture, it is in some more above the line categories, cinematography feels pretty safe to come along. We know that Hoyt has a very interesting relationship with the Academy getting into this category. He's missed for his last few. I think he has at least one nomination, right? He did get the nomination for Dunkirk. Cool, I was uh, and, right. And Oppenheimer looks similar to that. This looks beautifully shot, and it's not doing anything wild. It's just a very well-shot period piece. It makes sense why he missed for Tenet. It doesn't make sense why he missed for Interstellar. He should have been there for Nope. But I guess it makes sense, in a way, why that film blanked out at the Oscars. But with Oppenheimer, this also has the benefit of being one of the few films we've seen footage from. And we know this looks gorgeous, and it looks like an Academy Award nominee. Number five, though, I have to give you credit here. When I made my initial list, I don't know why, I just blanked on this movie. It wasn't in my 10. The revolutionary or very different types of cinematography choices that are being used with the zone of interest, a movie I know that you're very high on. I may not be there with you in every category, but cinematography, a 360 camera, if that is real, could be something that is its like stick to get into this category. If you have an interesting angle like this, you can easily manage your way into a lineup of five. And the cinematographer of this film has been nominated twice in the past for international films. So honestly, with this one looking like it has a bigger profile than Ida, than Cold War, this feels really 
possible. It's not in black and white, which those films were, which is always catnip for the Academy. I really like your top five. I think I have four of the same five as you, but I still have poor things in my top five. Uh, reason that I still have poor things is that I think this film no matter how controversial it is, we've seen images, we know it looks beautiful. Robbie Ryan is shooting it, he's great at what he does. Plus, there seems to be a really interesting use of color here. It jumps from black and white to very, very bold pastel colors with pinks and yellows. And even if this film is incredibly mixed, the cinematography branch could still go for it like they did with Bardo. I disagree a little bit. I think that the majority of the still images that we got look very dull. So to me, it went from my number five to my number 10, 11 spot. And the release date of the September 1st weekend does not look very good. Bardo at least had a November, December release and was being heavily pushed for a long time. I don't know what Poor Things is looking like. Looking at the rest of my top 10, I'm kind of going to blow through the rest of these just because they have a small little angle, but nothing big enough to put in the top five, obviously. Barbie's at six. We've seen a trailer. It looks great. Just Warner Brothers are going to get three of the five nominees. Probably not. May, December could be. It could pull a Tar type nomination, but that was a surprise. Not many people were predicting Tar at that moment, so I'm there as well. El Conde, are they going to put two international movies in the top five? Probably not. Maestro, black and white movie. We know they love these, but is Maestro big enough? Sometimes it hasn't mattered in the past because Cold War wasn't really a major contender, and it still got in. And at number 10, I do have the killer, David Fincher. He always does interesting stuff with his cameras. Just can he get this movie that doesn't seem as big as his last few into a cinematography nomination? Maybe this is our wild out of left field nomination this year in this category but again we can't really predict those because if we did they're not really that wild i like what you said about all of those right there i'm still not sure if maestro's black and white or not but if it is then that gives it a solid chance because it's been a few years since we've had black and white movie in cinematography and they love that shit. Now, I know Oppenheimer and Dune Part 2 both have sections in black and white, so maybe that'll help those two films. Probably. But some ones that I think you're missing in your top 10. Uh, the first one would be Nyad, which is being shot by Claudio Miranda, who of course was snubbed last year for Top Gun Maverick, but that said, being snubbed one year doesn't mean being snubbed the next year. This film is going to look gorgeous. We've seen what Claudio Miranda has done with ocean photography in the past with Life of Pi, so that makes me feel very positive about Nyad. Also, I think you're missing Asteroid City. I know we're both not as high on Asteroid City as some other people might be, uh, but that said, the French Dispatch was probably number seven, number eight for best cinematography, despite being an anthology film, and despite the fact that the film wasn't really well loved. Now, if Asteroid City gets great reviews, then the cinematography is very possible. And finally, Firebrand, which I know you're going to be happy to hear this, but the photos that we've seen from it so far are gorgeous. Gorgeous. I would maybe not have it in your top 10, but maybe put it a little bit close to the top 10 for cinematography. I'm being a little bit more reserved with Firebrand. I know it's when I want to see do well, but also going to wait to put into some more categories until those um, can reactions that do come out in about a month. So I don't have to wait long to uh, move it into some categories. 
Asteroid City, yeah, maybe it should be in my top 10. But again, as we talked about last time, I'm not really going to put this anywhere until it's actually in the race because I don't think it's going to be nominated. Now let's move over to best sound. We're going to couple best sound and best editing back to back. The first one is sound. At number one, I got Dune Part 2. We saw the trailer. We heard those booming sounds. It's going to be big. I think it's one of the ways that this film might actually be better than the first one. I think the editing has an opportunity to be absolutely insane well put together. At number two in best sound, the color purple, which I think is completely safe for a nomination in sound. That's risky to say, but it's a musical. It's a musical. It's going to have good sound design, and it will probably also be in editing. And number three, I have Oppenheimer. We know that the sound is going to be loud in this movie, but of course... Christopher Nolan could overdo it again, and if he overdoes it, then... Womp womp. Sorry, Oppenheimer, you are out of the sound category. But for now, just based on what we know about the sound effects that are going to be in this, the explosions, the loudness of all of that, and how it's all mixed together, I think that's uh, it's a pretty strong bet for a nomination, unless Christopher Nolan makes a, a bit of a fucky-wucky again, you know, messes it all up. This is the same sound, a lead sound editor as Tenet, so take that as yeah. you will, but Oppenheimer, from what we've seen, it, it looks like it's going to be more grounded. It does look that way, but we're going to know in a few months if uh, Christopher Nolan went way overboard. I don't blame his sound designer. I blame him. This has been a problem for years, ever since Interstellar. It's been a problem. Actually, ever since The Dark Knight Rises, it's been a problem where he emphasizes feeling uh, and emphasizes music rather than emphasizing having dialogue that people can hear and understand. Uh, all Christopher Nolan movies should be screened with subtitles. That's what I believe. Best sound number four, I have Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I think this is going to be one of the blockbuster picks in the category. Of course, I have three blockbusters in here right now, but I think that this one feels pretty promising for a, a sound nomination. It's going to have a lot of great effects throughout. Now, this one could be dropped if something more prestige comes into the category. Like number five, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is something more prestigious. This one, I think, is going to have some great sound of wind across the plains. It reminds me a lot of The Power of the Dog in terms of the sound uh, nomination that that film got, which this film could also get. But this one's also going to have a lot of potential for some loud effects mixed in with the slowness and the meditative sounds of wind going across the Oklahoma plains. So that's my top five, and I, I feel pretty good about it at this point. I don't feel very strong outside of the top five here, because at number six, I have The Killer. I don't have this performing extremely well with the Oscars, but, you know, it's David Fincher, and his sound typically does quite well with the Academy Awards. Then I have Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. This one's premiered this week. The reviews are good, but not as great as they need to be uh, in the conversation. But that said, the reason I have this here is that always we get one Marvel movie in the sound shortlist. They never get nominated, but they're always there in the shortlist, which means it's number seven. It's safe to be shortlisted, but it is not safe to be nominated. Then Ferrari. Ferrari goes vroom vroom, but film might be bad bad. So that is why I have it low. If it's good, it will likely be number six or number five. Then I have Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Mission Impossible has never gotten a single Oscar nomination. I don't see why it would start now, but it's worth mentioning because from everything we've seen, it just 
booms out of those IMAX speakers, and I can't wait to see it. And finally, The Flash, number 10, should be a financial hit. And if it's a financial hit, and a critical hit, which it looks like it's going to be, then it could make the shortlist here for sound. I don't know if I see it getting nominated, but it's possible. Also, just throwing some stuff out there, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is animated. Sometimes they love that. The Creator is a giant sci-fi movie with Greg Frazier shooting it. Uh, it got great reviews from CinemaCon. I don't know about the sound of this one, but it's worth mentioning here. Then there's John Wick Chapter 4, which has a lot of gunshots and a lot of bones cracking as people hit each other. Uh, I think sound is probably one of the best bets for John Wick Chapter 4. There's also Napoleon, there's also Wonka, and there's also Priscilla to round out some of the ones that are just on the periphery here, but I'm not feeling confident about any of those. Really, the only ones I feel confident about are my top three. Come on, dude, you mentioned Ferrari, but you don't mention Gran Turismo, like the real racing movie of oh, the year. Oh, actually, that is worth mentioning. That oh, totally I, I was is being worth sarcastic. Mentioning. No, it's worth mentioning. It's not going to happen, but it's Niall Blomkamp doing it. Uh, it's going to have very loud sound. If this is a financial hit, maybe it's possible. And it's possible with Niall Blomkamp behind it. I mean, he's had some real stinkers come out since this District will be a stinker. 9. It's worth considering, but it's not worth putting in the top 10. Speaking of Vroom Vroom movies, we go over to Best Editing, and I don't have a Vroom Vroom in my top five, but Ferrari, it is at number six. Like Matt just said, this movie could be great, this movie could be bad, we don't know, and until we know, it's not in, but if it is good, it is in. But for our real top five here, Oppenheimer, it's my number one, as I alluded to over in Best Sound, I am pairing these together, sound and editing. There is the chance for Nolan to go overboard, but also, this kind of seemed like the movie where you probably should go overboard because it is an atomic bomb. It should be ear-shattering. It should be in your face, but also the rest of the movie probably be more level where you can hear the dialogue. It's not intense action sequences. It's more grounded stuff. It's debates. In those scenes, you're going to be able to hear Murphy. You're going to be able to hear the rest of this unsolved ensemble cast, all-star cast, speak and do their stuff. But when it's supposed to hit, the sound will hit. And I think that will carry over into editing as well. Over in number two is where I do have Dune Part 2. This is a category where probably on paper it probably should win. But is Dune Part 2 going to win everything the first one wins? Probably not. And I feel like this is where it could slide off of that number one podium. Color Purple is here as well. It has a great chance to win, but also... I think this movie needs to be a Best Picture winner contender to win. I know you have it as that. I'm not there yet. So to me, it's here at number three for a nomination, but it's not yet into that top two for a chance to win. Past Lives, a movie I feel like is very strong in Best Picture, is in here at number four for Best Editing because we know that usually I would say three of your top five Best Picture nominees are in the editing category. Past Lives being either my number one or my number two right now kind of needs to be here. Now, number five, I do have Killers of the Flower Moon. This seems like the one that definitely should miss. I'm just not really sure what to pull to put into its spot at the moment. I have Oppenheimer and Dune Part 2 swapped. I think they both have the same arguments for why they could win. And the only reason why I have Dune besting Oppenheimer here is because I don't think Oppenheimer will end up being a Best Picture nominee, whereas I do mm -hmm. think Dune will. The same argument for both of them is they have a lot of format switching. They're both going to be cutting from black and white to color at some point in the film. They're also both going to be cutting between timelines, between locations a lot. Oppenheimer cuts back and forth through time, and Dune will cut back and forth across planets. And both of those make them seem very strong in editing. Otherwise, I also have The Color Purple. I also have Killers of the Flower Moon. 
I do not think that I have past lives, but I might have it in. So I, I agree with your top five. I think it's a very good top five. After that, I do have the killer at number seven. While it may not have as much room room action, we know that Fastbender will be on a bike for a good amount of the time, and that could count, right? Holdovers is at number eight. Uh, May December is at number nine. Zone of Interest is at number 10. These are other best picture hopefuls that are in my upper area best picture that could carry over here may december is not in my 10 at the moment but after can if it gets rave reactions it's right back up into my top five editing could see a tar like package where it's picture actress editing cinematography and then you include supporting actor maybe supporting actress and a director that's a pretty good package for may december i'm not quite there yet but i'm i'm right on the cusp poor things dumb money were stuff in my lineup last time they've fallen down at the moment but i could see the angle for both of them coming back into the conversation i would also recommend considering maybe not putting it in your top 10 but considering air which we know has very strong editing it probably won't be strong enough to make it in but if there's some big shockers and if we want to see air get a bigger package in order to get that best picture nomination editing would be possible it's not a hundred percent likely but it's definitely possible and it's worth considering the other thing would be next goal wins now next goal wins has been a film we've been writing off for two years now we've constantly been saying this is not happening next goal wins is not happening it's not happening but looky looky it has a november release date a prime yep. award season release date and guess what doesn't poor things so what is searchlight prioritizing they're prioritizing next goal wins which means we're taking back everything we've said about it this could be a big contender it's also worth mentioning that jojo rabbit got an editing nomination just a few years ago for taika waititi's kind of wacky kind of fun kind of unique style yeah i fully agree both those movies were probably in my 15 they're just not to the 10 yet i do believe as matt just mentioned next goal wins is now searchlight's main push it's definitely getting a tiff push with that being said it's probably placing top three maybe not number one but like number three at tiff air i do agree we, we've seen it it looks good just i don't think it looks good enough and with that being said just like my wes anderson asteroid city argument i don't really see it in this category so i'm not putting in the 10 but you know once we get into like november it's definitely going to be in my 10 it's just never in my five air i don't really see that unless a lot of the stuff above just falls on its face now let's move over to best visual effects where at number one i have duh dune part two duh Duh. I think this is the one thing where we can just wrap up the category now the same way that at the beginning of last year we could just say, Avatar, you get it. It's yours, Avatar. Here you go. We don't need to see the movie. Don't show us the movie. Just take the award. Dune is the same level of like, yeah, this is just winning. There's nothing else that can come close. Because number two is Oppenheimer, which the only visual effects in this are bombs going boom. That's not big visual effects. There's not a lot in here. There's an argument even that Oppenheimer could miss best visual effects. So number three, I have Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. This movie has just come out in theaters. We have not seen it yet. Uh, we will be seeing it next week and talking about it next week. But everything I've heard says that the visual effects in this are the best in the series so far. The best in any of the Guardians movies. Every year, without fail, there's always a Marvel movie in. Now, will it be this? Will it be the Marvels? I would say this is more likely, which is why the Marvels is just sitting outside of my top five. Then I have at number four, a little bit of a wild card. I have The Creator at number four. I don't know much about this film, but Greg Frazier is shooting it. It is a sci-fi fantasy movie. 
that screened little bits at CinemaCon, apparently to rave re reactions, makes me feel like this is a visual effects contender for sure. And at number five, I have Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, this one just seems safe. It's going to be a big movie. It's going to maybe not have enormous visual effects, but it's going to have enough to be noteworthy within this category and to probably land it on the shortlist and probably get it a nomination. I feel very confident saying four of her top five are locks. Yes, we're in May, but hey, Dune Part 2, it's winning. Oppenheimer, yeah, it could miss, but you don't need to have the most visual effects to get in here. If you have, if you deliver on your promise, you can get in. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, MCU, they always have one. This is our one, Indiana Jones. Same thing as Oppenheimer. It, it's it's going to coast Top Gun Maverick style. That leads us to our number five for me, which to me, it's one that you have out. Creator could be it, but also, at least if I understand right, they showed a trailer and the trailer didn't show much, just like an overall premise. I could be wrong here, but I don't know. I feel like it definitely probably would be shortlisted. I just don't know how much of a push it's going to get. While I think one movie you have out is going to get that push. Well, let me guess. It's The Little Mermaid. And my reason Ooh, for not yeah. having The Little Mermaid in my top five is despite the fact that we've seen the Academy fall for this stuff in the past with The Lion King, with The Jungle Book, the fish in The Little Mermaid look absolutely like nightmare fuel. Personally, I have nothing against this film, but I think that the backlash against this will get to them. I think that might push it out of the top five. That's why I have it below. I would also say that The Flash is worth mentioning. Um, it's getting really good reviews, but that said, none of the the zaddy uh, Zack Snyder-verse movies have made it in. We haven't seen any of those make it in. Not even Wonder Woman, then, you know. I also think it's worth mentioning Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves as a potential shortlist. We've seen it. The visual effects are great. Barbie, maybe, maybe that could be a contender, but I, I don't think it would get nominated for this. As well, you can't discount The Killer. David Fincher has gotten shortlisted in the past. He always uses a lot of visual effects in his movies. It's very interesting. Wonka as well, and of course, Netflix's Adam Sandler vehicle, Spaceman. Might not be very good, but I'm sure the visual effects will be worth taking note of. I think visual effects issue will be a very straightforward category where, as I mentioned before, for seem pretty good and it's just what is number five is it marvels is it the creator is it little mermaid is it the flash is it something completely else that's that's where i think more of the guessing games to come this year other than hey what's the five kind of like how i think last year was as well where we kind of knew yeah we had a scare at one point like oh is black panther missing but at the end of the day three or four of our category was pretty like knowledgeable throughout the whole year. My big prediction here is I think when Oppenheimer premieres, people are going to start saying there's not enough visual effects for this to get in. Kind of the way that we did with Top Gun Maverick last year, where mm -hmm. for a very long time we just said that there wasn't enough for it to get in, and then it got in anyways. So maybe that's the same thing that happens this year, and Oppenheimer people think it won't get in, and then it does. Or maybe it actually just doesn't. We have a movie review that was a movie I wasn't really expecting to be great after some trailers, but it truly was after watching it, and that is Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. This is one of the biggest surprises of the year. I'd seen Kelly Freeman Craig's previous film, The Edge of Seventeen, which I had loved. I had been very much anticipating Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. What is surprising is that this is one of the highest rated movies of the year by critics. This has an 86 
on Metacritic. I was expecting high 70s. I was not expecting high 80s. This is huge, huge numbers for this movie. And we are a bit late to the jump to talk about this, but it means that we can really get into the details here. So we will be going into some spoiler territory here. But Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. It's just a lovely, lovely movie. And I think it's safe to say we both agree with the critics on this one. I, I think there's two avenues these type of movies can go down. They're either some of my favorites of the year or they're some of my biggest disappointments of the year because I think the whole premise of a coming of age opens up so many different avenues, so many different ways to tell a story. You can be creative. You can use it in the visuals, the acting, the script, whatever. And usually the ones that let me down are just kind of bland and generic. But lucky for us, this one is not bland. It's not generic. I thought it was very engaging. I thought there was a lot of great aspects here that all came together to make a very very enjoyable movie. I find with coming-of-age movies, and maybe this is part of why I was a little bit hesitant about the movie, despite the fact that I loved The Edge of Seventeen, I think it's that when I think of coming-of-age movies, the ones that I really love are about teenagers, about people who are on the cusp of adulthood, not on the cusp of being a teenager. So maybe part of me was looking at this and thinking of it as like Diary of a Wimpy Kid, but set in the 1960s. Kelly Freeman Craig, she delivers and she directs this movie with such tenderness, such heart. You feel like she really empathizes with these kids, with everything that they're going through and her script balanced humor and heart just so incredibly well. I also really liked the way that she captured the era of the film. She captured the 1960s without ever having to make huge references to the time period. There was no moment in this like we see in so many coming of age movies that are set in the past where it'll be like, it's the 1960s, we're all watching the moon landing. Ooh, look at that. There was none of that in this movie. It just used the era to create a feeling and point out how universal Margaret's story of growing up really is. This isn't just about a kid growing up in the 60s. This is about a kid growing up in any time period. I think the direction is probably one of the least interesting aspects when it comes to the movie. I don't think it's bad, but I don't think it's out there trying to be different. It's very serviceable. Like It knows what type of movie it needs to convey, and it's doing a great job of telling that story without flashy visuals or dynamic camera movements. It's just placing you there into these settings and just letting you feel a part of this group of girls and their story of growing up. I would agree that Kelly Freeman Craig's direction isn't flashy or anything. It, it's not trying to draw your attention, but the one thing I would say did draw my attention was the way that she used visual jokes through the editing. Like, one of my favorite scenes in the film is when the girls steal the Playboy magazine and they're talking about the woman's breasts in it, and then it cuts to them doing the, the silly we must, we must, we must increase our bust. Oh my god. What a great visual joke. What a great cut. That's really where I think the direction shines. I mean, with something like Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, this is such a classic book. It is from the 1960s. It is an iconic piece of, of children's literature. When you have something so iconic, it's so easy to make an adaptation of it that just feels boring because everyone has been copying from this text in their own coming-of-age movies for the last 50 years. Now, the screenplay surprised me at how deep it is and how it spoke about religion, actually. Above all of the coming-of-age stuff, I was really shocked that a book from the 1960s would be so open about exploring religion and about trying to figure out where you fit into the world. I thought that was really deep and really touching, uh, and it really struck me and moved me. The script is the 
highlight of this movie here. While I very much appreciate the themes it goes into about you know, a young girl going into teenhood and all the stuff that comes with that, whether it's bodily functions or whether it's relations with your friends around you or your family. I very much appreciate all that, but it's not something I related to. But something I did very much relate to was this topic of religion. Coming from a family that is a split religion, just like Margaret's was, I was like, wow, I've been in this exact same situation. This is very interesting, very fun to see. So I really appreciate that aspect here with the script that I think was very well done and very realistic. But to the parts, maybe so I haven't lived through myself, but I still was thoroughly engaged with Margaret and her group of friends, whether it was the aforementioned trying to increase your bust or the first existence of your period and stuff along that way is like yeah maybe i don't personally have a bit of that experience but it's still very engaging to see what people do feel like and are motivated by when they do go through those my grandparents were catholic and through my childhood there were times when i was like maybe i should give that a try even though i'm not being raised that maybe i should just try that and then you know, ultimately, I, I realize that's just not for me, which is kind of the path that Margaret takes in this movie. And I was really pleased as well to see. I don't know how the book ends, but I hope the book kind of goes in a similar direction because I really appreciate it that she's her own person no matter what she chooses. And there's no right decision or wrong decision uh, because I would expect something from the 60s to be like, she tried all of these things, but in the end, she realized that the only true religion was being a Jehovah's Witness. But yeah, the the humor with her friends I thought was relatable, and even though as men, like, we can't relate directly to a lot of the experiences, there's things that, you know, we, we can understand and empathize with that are kind of uh, analogous to that. Uh, and I don't know, I, I never get the the whole vibe when people say like oh it's a movie about girls i i can't understand i can't empathize like this movie draws such empathy and even though we haven't lived these exact experiences we know those feelings we know what it's like to grow up what it's like to be small in a very big world what it's like to realize that your friends are shitty and to just want to be cool and want to be perceived as Good. I think this is such a, an empathetic movie. I think that the parents anchor this movie, and I think that might be the perspective that Kelly Freeman Craig has that really uh, elevates this. This isn't just Margaret's story, this is her mom's story, and the whole movie is anchored by Richard McAdams. This film did a great job of showcasing three generations of Simon women, whether it was Kathy Bates, Rachel McAdams, or even Margaret herself. And I thought everyone here was very great. They they did well. But to pick some other like smaller performances, I thought that her friend Nancy was like she hit all the comedic moments that she needed to, especially from a youth performance, which you know sometimes can be a little tricky to get comedy out of kids. And then I thought the guy who played uh, Mr. Benedict, her teacher, also adds to some very drama moments where like yeah, they're not like super serious, but like you're like hey. This is just two nice people having a conversation, and it helps spark some more of the deeper discussions that this movie could promote. You know what I think is really weird? I know Benny Safdie and Rachel McAdams are around the same age, but because Rachel McAdams has been around for 20 years now in the industry, and Benny Safdie we've only really known since Good Time in 2017, it feels weird watching them be co-parents. But I really liked Benny Safdie. What did you think about him in this film? He really nailed the, the the fun, goofy dad. Like He feels like in your friend group, the dad was like, yeah, do whatever you want. I, I'm just here to have a good time and be fun. But he also knows when to step in to be serious because I 
really appreciate the scene when both grandparents come in whether it's the mom's grandparents and the dad's grandparents come in and they have this giant talk where it starts off just a little awkward but over the course of the night it gets more and more like in your face and then i just love how mickey adams and Safety play off the concerned parents like hey no stop this and i liked how it wasn't like picking a side it's like hey you can do whatever whether that was from the performances or the screenplay or even the direction like i thought it was very well just showing you the moment without telling you hey this is what you're supposed to feel now let's talk about oscar chances because again this is one of the most acclaimed movies of the year so far it is getting the level of acclaim that says oscars but that said this is an april release uh, it is a teen movie. We've seen films with similar acclaim, with a similar profile, like 8th grade, end up getting absolutely blanked at the very end of the year. Do you think that Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret has any shot for any Academy Award nominations? Sure. Am I going to predict it? No. I, I think this kind of lives and dies by that adapted screenplay nomination, just as we've discussed on this channel before. Adapted's kind of deep this year, and I feel like in a previous year where Adapt was kind of weak, like last year, maybe this could sneak in, be that surprise lone screenplay nomination. But at this moment, I'm not really seeing a great route unless this is like some of the critics all get behind. Every big body award show, hey, this is in for Adapt screenplay, then yeah, then it's getting in. But without that type of push, I can't really see it. But if this was a bigger player, then yeah, screenplay, Rachel McAdams could be a nice little dual combo. But right now, May 9th, I'm not really seeing this. I'd say the same. I'd keep this in my top 10 for screenplay because I see a route where enough films are disqualified from WGA that this gets a WGA nomination. Do I think that translates into an Oscar nomination? Likely not. But again, we're so early in the year that things can flop. And when things flop, the things that we know are good, they just slide right in and take their place. So it's very possible that through a war of attrition, enough films come out and are just not great that this ends up being top five i don't see that happening i'm looking here at google to see what its budget is and there's a few different reports but it seems like it's around 30 million dollars which sadly would make it too expensive to qualify for indie speech so it's like oh maybe that could be like the start of its run where we see mcadams pop up we see screenplay then it goes from there but sadly it does not look like it will be eligible there but i agree with you if enough stuff is ineligible this definitely does show up at wga one of my major thoughts coming out of this movie is this might not be an oscar movie but i think kelly Freeman craig in the next five to ten years is going to have a best picture nominee i think that's a great point this could be who knows our 2026 first time nominee that we have been saying here that you know kind of needs to happen so i think that's a great thing she's made two great movies and i'm sure she'll continue that in the future and whatever she does next it's probably going to be going very not high up in my predictions but it's going to be in my predictions for sure she is such a talent and someone to watch you know what time is everyone's favorite time of the week that is draft time when i'm happy that means i won i'm not happy that means i lost and i'm a little bit happy right now so that means that i won last week's 80s horror draft but today we're kind of doing a 180 from 80s horror and we're doing the best youth acting performances of all time in honor of are you there god it's me margaret coming out this week where i don't think anyone here will be drafting any performances from that movie but i thought all the kid actors in that were great the the kids did a great job in that movie and it's honestly just a, a great 
potential for us to take a look at some of these really underappreciated performances by young actors, because I always think that a lot of the time these performances are looked over as just like, oh, well, the director did a good job. This is our opportunity to really honor some of the greatest achievements by people under the age of 18 uh, in film through all of the years of the film industry. There's a lot of choices here to take for number one, and um, I'm not really sure where exactly to go, but there's one youth acting performance here as of late that people were clamoring to be nominated for an Oscar, and they did not get nominated, and honestly, if they were nominated, they probably would have won, and that is Jacob Tremblay in a room. Very nice. Room is a great movie, and the movie is all held together by Jacob Tremblay, uh, and, and the sensitivity and the maturity in that performance. That's a, a demanding role, and he did an excellent, excellent job with it. When I normally do these drafts, I make lists of like 10, and then I add extras if I need to. Be like, okay, here's my main competitors. I don't know where to go. Here, there's like six I could take first, and I don't really know which one to do. Just that one feels, you know, the most universally beloved of the ones I had listed here. I'm really glad you didn't take one of my first two, because my first two are actually both right here. Now, first off, I'm going to take Haley Steinfeld in True okay. Grit. Uh, this, I think, is one of the best performances of all time, I would say. Not even child performances. In this film, Haley Steinfeld outshines a cast that includes Jeff Bridges, Matt Damon, and Josh Brolin. She's the lead of this movie, but for some reason they were like, hey, guess what? You're going supporting. And then she was Oscar nominated in supporting there for some reason. Who knows why? also worth noting with these two actors they have gone on to keep performing we've seen a lot of Haley steinfeld we've seen a lot of jacob tremblay and we've also seen a lot of brooklyn prince who has continued acting after the florida project this performance is so outstanding she holds her own against willem dafoe against all of the non-actors who are just performing themselves she melts your heart in this movie i think you would need to be made of stone not to cry at her final scenes as she just weeps and weeps it's incredible work i mean we've taken a lot of modern performances so let me let me turn the clock back a little bit for probably the og youth acting performance give me judy garland in the wizard of oz for her role in this movie i feel like she is such a breath of fresh air she radiates yes. so much positivity so much youth so much light wizard of oz is a, i think a very interesting movie to me do i think it's one of the best movies of all time not really but it's one of the most influential one of the most important movies of all time and i feel like the majority of the story does weigh on her shoulders and she delivers I think a truly great performance in the leading role there. Judy Garland is just an icon, so this is a very, very strong choice. But what are you picking up next? See, this is where I really hit a wall, because my top three are all gone now of Tremblay, Steinfeld, and Garland. So I don't really know what to do here. There's some more risk picks I could do. There's some more personal picks I could do. And there's some more, you know, general, like most audiences are going to love these. So... You know, I think I'll use this pick to take the one, the only, Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. Ah, that was my next. Damn. Jodie Foster is incredible in this role. Uh, I was so good in this role that Ronald Reagan almost got assassinated. The power of cinema, you could say. <laughs> and now the guy who tried to assassinate him makes covers of indie rock songs on YouTube. What a weird world. What a very, very weird world. But Jodie Foster is iconic in this role. She is. And which iconic performance are you going to take here next? Oh, well, I'm going to take Linda Blair in The Exorcist. 
Yep. All right. Well, there's the other one I was looking at. The physicality that was needed for this role from Linda Blair is just insane. This kid had to writhe around and scream and shout and basically transform themselves into a demon. Of course, they had the help of makeup. They had the help of other voice actors to play the voice of the demon. But the physicality all comes from Linda Blair, who just defined the, uh, the horror genre for the last 50 years. Even in Evil Dead, we were seeing last week that this just feels like a, a, a knockoff of what Linda Blair did in the 70s in The Exorcist. So the next pick I'm going to go with here is Abigail Breslin in Little Miss Sunshine. She truly is the sunshine in this movie. I remember when I first watched Little Miss Sunshine, I was surprised by how dark the movie was and how sad it was and how sad everyone in the movie was. But Olive, played by Abigail Breslin, she is just the hope in this film. She is the positivity, is the kindness that pulls this whole thing together. And that's why I think that she's the perfect pick for my team right here. I'm down to my last two, and I still have a pretty long list here, and I don't really know where to go. So first up here, I'm gonna go with Miss Wallace and Beasts of the Southern Wild. This is one I really want to take earlier, but I felt like I could save it for a little bit later in the draft. She's so amazing this. The same stuff I said about <sighs> Tremblay earlier, We'll go for her here. I know she did get nominated, but she should have won. Literally, the only reason I didn't just pick her is because I thought to myself, oh, Dylan's not going to pick Kvenza Hain Wallace. Dylan's not going to well, take her. I did. I did. But I still have a list of like eight because I went a little overboard with this draft, taking a lot of names because I didn't really know what angle I wanted to go with. But I want to take one that maybe isn't as known, but I think is probably the best in my personal opinion on this list. And that's Abraham Atta and Beast of No Nation. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Idris Elba. I think he is better than Idris Elba in this movie. I wish this movie got more love when it came out. I think this got a SAG Ensemble nomination. I just wish he got more. He hasn't really done much since, but I feel like this is one of the best youth performances. Like, standalone. Like, this didn't develop into a larger career. Just a young boy giving his all in one role. That is a very good pick. Uh, Atta is really, really strong in this movie. I'm also going to give some honorable mentions here of smaller films that I would love to pick that I just don't know if our audience would have seen and would have voted for. Jean-Pierre Leo in The 400 Blows, uh, Yuya Yagira in Nobody Knows, Subir Banerjee in Pather Panchali, Salvatore Cascio in Cinema Paradiso, I think are all some of the best performances of all time. I am going to pick Alexei Kravchenko in Come and See. Come and See is a war movie from the 80s. It is known as one of the most disturbing, one of the most depressing movies of all time, as we see a child navigate his way across uh, the Eastern Front in Russia uh, as Nazis are killing everyone in the area. We see this child transform from someone who's full of life and hope into someone who looks war-torn and weathered and aged. Uh, it's an incredible performance, uh, and it's one that I hope enough people uh, in our viewing community have seen because I think that this probably would be one of the greatest of all time. And I'm also going to give out a few shouts because one thing I'm noticing with our list is we don't have many comedic performances here, but I know everyone out there is probably screaming, where's Macaulay Culkin for Home Alone? I don't really like this movie, so I didn't want to draft him no. here. But looking at some other people that I had on my next list up, Natalie Portman for Leon the Professional, Ty Sheridan for Mud, Sophia Lillis for It, River Phoenix and Stand By Me, Alex Hibbert in Moonlight, he plays the youngest version of Chiron, and Kylie Kern in Doctor Sleep. 
Also not even mentioning Roman Griffith Davis in Jojo Rabbit. The team that I have is Haley Steinfeld in True Grit, Brooklyn Prince in The Florida Project, Linda Blair in The Exorcist, Abigail Breslin in Little Miss Sunshine, and Alexei Kravchenko in Come and See. On the opposite side, I use the first overall pick to take Jacob Tremblay in Room, Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz, Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver, Mrs. Wallace in Beast of Southern Wild, and Beast of Donations, Abraham Atta. Let us know what your favorite young performance is of all time, and make sure you go and vote on who has the best team. You can find it in our YouTube community tab. Go and vote, vote, vote. Hearing your voice is very important because whoever wins gets first pick next week for our best threequels of all time draft that we're going to be doing alongside Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. We are talking Chevalier because it's finally been like seven months and we finally get to talk about this because you saw this all the way back at tiff i have been waiting for so long to talk about this movie dylan because i have known all along you were gonna love this movie hopefully i remember enough about this to talk about it we are gonna go into spoiler territory because we have both seen this if you haven't seen it turn off the video and come back afterwards kelvin harrison jr is one of my favorite working actors right now first saw him in waves loose cyrano well guess what He's even better in this movie because he's finally getting to take on a real life figure, but in the leading role because we've seen him do this in supporting roles in like Trial of the Chicago 7, Elvis. But you know, here he's great and I'll go more into his performance here in a little bit, but Matt, like we mentioned before, you saw this movie like seven, eight months ago. I don't know how long it's been since TIFF. So I guess how were your initial thoughts and how have they changed over time? When I first saw this movie at TIFF, I was really blown away by the visuals. It is such a, a gorgeous looking film in the production design, the costume design, and the camera work. Afterwards, I looked up the director to see what else he'd done, and he has done a lot of stuff with HBO, including he directed a few episodes of their Watchmen series, which makes a lot of sense when you see how gorgeous the visuals in this movie are. Overall, I really just liked learning about a slice of history that I was completely unaware of. It's really cool to see someone like Bologna here, who is dug up from history and shown to an audience saying, hey, isn't this person awesome? Isn't it crazy that you've never learned that this person existed before? I really appreciate indulging to a story that, as you mentioned, of someone we don't really know about because Joseph Bologna was basically erased from history for centuries and his story's finally being rediscovered now. And I thought that Kelvin Harrison Jr. just portrayed him so confident, so bold. You could kind of make this character seem like a jerk at times, but I don't think Harrison ever does that. Like, he knows he's good, and he shows it, but he also knows when to be nice and when to be caring. What did you think about the rest of the cast? Because I didn't think anyone else really came that close to him. I agree that Harrison plays this character in, in a very confident uh, very bold way. He, he never seems arrogant. What he does seem like is he is fighting for his place in this world. He knows that no one is going to give him what he knows he deserves, so he needs to fight for it at every single moment. In terms of the other cast members, I just really don't remember anyone. I couldn't even name another cast member. Part of this is the impact of seeing this eight months ago. There are things that are just vanishing from my mind. The things that I felt most strongly about are still remaining. I don't remember who else is in the cast. Samara Weaving was his love interest. I thought she was okay. That's where some of my faults with this movie comes with, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. The rest of the cast had some 
actors and actresses that I may recognize their faces, but their names would not pop up to me. However, I did very much appreciate that opening Mozart scene, maybe not so much for the actor being Mozart, but I thought it was a great introduction into this world, into the tone of seeing how Joseph is so bold, so talented, so confident, and he's willing to get up in front of a stage and just basically blow away what is often regarded as the greatest in their field and shows like hey actually this guy he's pretty good you shouldn't you know take him not serious in addition to that scene i love the the technical aspects of this movie because like we know the music's going to be great so like the sound it, it, it's amazing but the costumes they were very lush they reminded me of his previous work in Cyrano the production design was not jaw-dropping but I thought it was very well done sending you into the tone of this world and you mentioned a little bit before about the director I thought the editing choices of this were very great with some of those seamless transitions where like you cut from like the action happening here and like you pan down and like to the right and then you're into the next scene whether you're going through like a glass painting or the sheets or clothing or whatever it was i just felt like this movie had very good pace to keep you engaged and enthralled throughout its i think pretty short runtime i think it was just under two hours well if we're mentioning that mozart scene at the very beginning we have to talk about the cinematography of that scene the way that the camera just floats between the two of them as they're dueling on the violins what incredible work and i think through the entire film the camera work kind of just is it's very well lit but it's the movement of the camera that feels so dynamic that keeps you so engaged in the film. As I mentioned before, I do have some negatives here. And that would mainly be the stuff outside of his art, outside of his music. While I get it's very needed to tell the story of who Joseph was, that you need some of his family stuff, his romantic stuff. I thought that part of the plot was very rushed through with the drama with his mother, with him rediscovering his family culture. She kind of pops in. I would say like, between like the halfway and three fourths marks of this movie and it has about like five minutes of screen time where you like you like get like hey he's reconnecting but we don't really get to see it progress very much i also didn't think the romantic connection between harrison and weaving was at like a 10 like obviously these are two very talented actors but i didn't really feel like there was much like selling me like hey these two people would like fall head over heels when they're being told from everyone you can't do this and i did think the antagonist of her husband was kind of half-baked at times like i don't really feel like there was any drama there outside of he's racist guy he does racist things but there was nothing really added to it i really like this movie i also there are things that pull me back from really loving this movie as we've talked about the technical elements are incredible kelvin harrison jr does a great job with this but it is a period drama, and despite the fact that what Kelvin is bringing to the role, what the texts are bringing to the film in general, kind of spurs the idea that this is a revolutionary film, it's still a historical drama, and it still suffers from a lot of the same issues that a lot of very boring period dramas suffer from. It just gets caught up in so much of the politics of the time, so much of the stuffy period drama stuff. That is really tough when you have a film that's trying to present itself as revolutionary, present itself as uh, fresh and bold and exciting and incendiary when the script feels like any other period drama that you've seen. That's... A downside to it. The script didn't have that same revolutionary incendiary energy that it seemed like the rest of the film wanted to bring to it. I see this all the time in these period dramas that are trying to be like we're gonna reinvent history, we're going to present a, an entirely new image of what history 
is, and you're gonna love this. It's not gonna be like any of those old ones that you've seen. The only film that I think has successfully done that is The Favorite by Yorgos Lanthimos. Every other film that tries, I think, still falls into the some, some of the same traps that makes these, this genre kind of boring to watch, mm-hmm. kind of cliche. I think this movie succeeds at its most the first 15 to 20 minutes and the last 15 and 20 minutes. I think the middle part of this movie is where it's brought down a little bit because you get the monotonous love story, you get the family affairs, you get the, the stuff that you normally get in your period dramas. But that first 15, 20 minutes, as we see the rise of Joseph, we had that face off of uh, Mozart. We have him going to the school, showing his talents, proving his worth, and getting his title of the Chevalier. And in the last 15 minutes is when he essentially loses that bid and has to make a decision of where he stands politically, where he stands with his family, and where he stands with the French Revolution. And I feel like those two sections have that innovative and that boldness that you were talking about. But we are in Oscars channel, and this movie did have some awards buzz once upon a time, but it did get tagged with an April release date from Searchlight, which is not a great sign of confidence to predict it in, you know, really any category. But we both spoke very highly of its text. So I guess my question to you is, do you think this makes a shortlist, or is this destined to become a new member of the This Head Oscar Buzz Club? People are going to say... It's an April release, but you know what else was an April release? Everything, everywhere, all at once. But the thing that's different is that this is Searchlight, and we know Searchlight is going to prioritize in a very old-fashioned way. They are going to put the movies that they think have awards chances in their prime October, November, and December release slots. That's just how Searchlight operates, and the Oscars are not really they they don't value everything based on merit it is about what is most seen and it doesn't seem like searchlight is going to push behind this it reminds me a lot of a little film called the personal history of david copperfield and that one also premiered at tiff and then was not released that year it was released in the following april some people said Personal History of David Copperfield could get a costume design nomination or a production design nomination. It ended up with neither, and I think we're going to see the exact same thing happen to Chevalier, where some people will say maybe it can happen, but in the end, Searchlight just has other priorities. Its best chance would be in that costume department. However, looking up its costume designer, Oliver Garcia, who is a newer name on the scene, does not have many credits to his name, thought the work was great here. But to be a very early release, you kind of need to have a bigger name designer attached to you to stick through the whole season as we saw last year with Jenny Bevins with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. That movie stuck out the whole season, but probably because a movie about fashion on top of being someone who is beloved by the category. Well, like I mentioned before, Garcia's work is great. He's not really a big name at the moment, so I don't think this film will stick out the whole year. But as you mentioned, it's not always about merit. This film's great, Oscar nominations aside. Thank you for tuning to episode 47 of Fantasy Fumball. We went over a lot today. We had some technical category predictions for the month of May. We reacted to the Dune trailer. We drafted child acting performances, and we talked about the films. Are you there? God, it's me, Margaret, and Chevalier. You know, a very jam-packed episode. Matt, I guess, you know, we're sitting here, you know, the early parts of May. How are we feeling just, you know, about the season as we get closer and closer until our draft later in the year? I guess what I'd say there is I'm really not sure how this season is shaping up. I mean, at this point in the year, we don't normally have any frontrunners. Maybe I was spoiled last year having seen everything ever all at once so early. 
uh, having Top Gun, Maverick, and Elvis just on the horizon. And, you know, we had so many Best Picture movies early. So far, it's weird. It, it doesn't feel like there's anything like that. How are you feeling about this year so far in terms of movies, though? I think this year has been very great for movies. Like, I don't think I've seen a lot of stinkers this year. Well, I haven't seen many things I would consider to be, like, best of the year quality once we hit the end of the year. There hasn't been many things I'm just like, yeah, I wasted two hours of my time. And I can remember back to last year at this point, I had a handful of duds. Maybe I'm just being better with what movies I select to go watch this year. Or maybe that's just a state of the quality of what we're getting. But I think that could be something that would be very fun to look at going forward is going back to previous years and seeing how early do our Best Picture nominees tend to come out. Like, do we always have one movie come up before August every year? Is it two? Last year we had three. So... Who really knows what it's going to be like this year? Because I would say Past Lives comes out in June, so that's probably one, and maybe we can sneak a number two in there. I, I forgot Past Lives comes out in June. That's so exciting. Oh, it's so close. You're right. There is a lot of good stuff. It feels like every week I'm excited to see the next week's movies that we're going to be talking about. Uh, there's never any weeks where I'm like, oh my god, I have to go see that. But, of course, until next time, uh, thank you so much for listening in. My name is Matt. And my name is Dill, and this is Fancy Film Ball. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Fancy Film Ball with Matt and Dill. Keep up to date with us on Twitter at FFilmBall. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. We even upload a video format of the podcast to YouTube if you want to see our faces. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show, and come back next week.